0: We're not suffering persecution. We're, we're simply sharing our place at the table. Like, you know, the rejection of theocracy or white nationalism is not persecution. The inability to force your views on others isn't persecution. It's just called being a decent human being.
1: Welcome to Holy Heretics from the Sophia Society. We're your hosts, Melanie.
0: And Gary Allen.
1: Thanks for joining us today. We are super excited for today's topic. It's a fascinating one and possibly the reason behind why so many millennials and Gen Zers are just leaving the church in droves. And it's not the reasons, at least that we've heard from church leaders, like that there aren't enough churches, so we just need to plant more and then they'll come. No, we believe the problem goes much deeper than that and is much more foundational to the church and therefore is one that will require a lot more from us to fix. So is possibly also the reason why so many within the church aren't even willing to acknowledge it as a problem. I mean, it's much easier to plant another church or to have a flashy new marketing plan than it is to deal with flawed core principles and a cracked foundation But we do believe that this is important to address because this problem keeps the church in the U.S. from actually becoming that countercultural alternative community it's supposed to be. So let's start there. Gary Allen, what are these deeper problems within American Christianity?
0: Yeah, let's just jump into the deep end. So there are three fundamental problems in American Christianity that are endemic as well as corrosive to our faith. And so that's why we refer to them as an unholy trinity. And they consist of what we call the three Ps of fundamentalism. That's power, patriarchy, and purity. And all three of these concepts work together, not only to support one another, but to create an entire religious substructure that that frankly needs to be torn down. So when we're looking at power, patriarchy, and purity, we're we're actually looking at concepts that we just owe ourselves uh, the opportunity to reject, to resist, and to really radically reshape our faith around something far more salvific and something far more transformational. So there is another way. There is another way of being Christian that rejects all three of these, and and so like a lot of our listeners. We're troubled by this, and and we're troubled by a faith that no longer looks like its founder. And what we're trying to do is discuss this kind of dominant dominator form of religion that we see as normal and normative in American Christianity.
1: All right, so purity, patriarchy, and power. Those definitely aren't loaded terms or anything. I do want to dive deeper into each one of them, but before we go there... Is this something that's unique to Christianity? Is this just like a problem within the Christian church and nowhere else?
0: No, not at all. You know, an honest assessment shows that all three of these issues arise just just about in every institutional form of of religion. And in particular, we find them in more fundamentalist expressions of faith, which just naturally drift toward the pursuit of power or purity laws or male-dominated leadership. So... The root of all three of these is fundamentalism in general. And a few years ago in an interview, Pope Francis said that fundamentalism is a sickness that is in every religion. Religious fundamentalism, in his words, isn't religion because it lacks God. So when we're talking about fundamentalism, we're really describing a religion of rage or a religion of fear that then gravitates toward purity, power, and 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 patriarchy. And and so we see this in every religion when individuals become afraid of or they become outraged by a culture around them that they perceive as disregarding some of their sacred values. And, and so fundamentalists often respond in dangerous or sim- simplistic ways to anything that kind of threatens their views. And, and, and someone who has done a lot of research on this is a gentleman by the name of Dr. Tomas Pataki who wrote a pretty controversial book that my guess is most Christians have never heard of. It's called Against Religion. And in the book, he lists 10 characteristics that all Christian, Muslim, Hindu, and even Jewish fundamentalists have in common. And what's interesting for our conversation today is three of those 10 characteristics are the three Ps, purity, culture, patriarchy, and this kind of culture warrior pursuit of of power. So, a Long way around answering your question, Mel, is fundamentalism in general isn't unique to Christianity. We see it played out in just about every global religion.
1: This is really fascinating. I've never studied fundamentalism in other religions, so I had no idea that they had so many characteristics in common. But I guess I'm wondering why we should even talk about this unholy trinity or the three Ps, because most of the Christians I know would not consider themselves fundamentalists and would even be offended if I suggested that they might be
0: well, and I think just because we don't want to be doesn't mean we aren't um but but I understand like w- for the most part, we've sort of distance ourselves from the word fundamentalist because it's become either a dirty word or you know a four letter word in Christianity. but when you start to really look at some of the major attributes of conservative Christian evangelicalism in America you know tell me what you see when you when you look at when you look at us you know we are a religion that is primarily dualistic we it's sort of this us versus them worldview we are known by our culture warrior mentality kind of an aggressive aggressive attitude toward the outside world we drift toward an obsession around textuality that idolizes a sacred text which must be read literally you know, you can't disagree with it. We believe in patriarchal leadership. We have a hypersensitivity towards sexual behavior, especially female sexual behavior. And then there's this weird, gross, perverted convergence of religion and nationalism. So when you look at all six of those attributes, I mean, we have to be honest to say that That describes a majority of conservative evangelicalism, and all six of those attributes are a fundamentalist understanding of a faith.
1: Huh. Well, all of those things are things I was raised with as foundational to Christianity, so much so that I didn't even question them or even know that I could question them. That was religion. That was Christianity. So then when I got older and realized there might potentially possibly be a different way to approach Christianity even that idea felt like dirty and sinful because i was questioning the bedrock of christianity if i questioned all those aspects that you mentioned
0: yeah and and it's just because we don't know what we don't know you know most of us grew up in very myopic faith traditions that taught us to believe that our truth was the truth and there was only one way. And 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 you know, strangely, we had found it, right? And nobody else had. So I think we want to be honest with ourselves, be kind with ourselves, and also be kind toward the faith traditions that we are drifting away from. You know, it's it's not their fault. We're not condemning them. And we're also not saying that every Christian in the United States is a fundamentalist, but rather what we are trying to uncover is that fundamentalist beliefs and tactics have become far more pervasive than we may want to admit. And I think it's because the culture at large is drifting more and more into a post-Christian concept, as well as becoming more pluralistic. And so that's the response. You know, there's a fear-filled response toward that. And we just need to be, you know, honest about it and acknowledge it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that it's not easy to admit that, but it sure seems like that's the case. So let's just go back to those three parts of the unholy trinity and define all three of them so that we're all on the same page. So let's start with purity. What do you mean when you say the word
0: purity? Well, we automatically assume that purity has everything to do with sexuality, which says a lot about how the church has created a fetish around sex around sex. We fixate on sexuality as a way of determining who's pure and who who isn't pure but but purity culture is a lot bigger than that, and and these purity systems actually show up in almost every religion, functioning as a way to draw a line between insiders and outsiders, between those who are accepted and 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 whole, and those who aren't and and unwhole. And I think that's why in the Bible we see so much time and energy dedicated from the religious establishment to maintaining purity. You know, lepers, women. Uh, The blind, eunuchs, the chronically ill, all of these people groups were considered impure or untouchable or socially outcast. And so they formed their own ancient kind of archaic purity culture. Theologian Marcus Borg talks a lot about this in his book, Meeting Jesus, again for the first time. And he says purity culture creates a world with sharp social and spiritual boundaries between pure and impure, righteous and sinner, whole and not whole. Male and female, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. Now, of course, in modern Christianity, we could give a rip about Jews and Gentiles, or you know, pure and impure. But yeah, you think about it, we we really do draw pretty hard lines of purity, and most of them drift back to sexuality. It's become the great litmus test for creating distinctions, uh, you know, between cisgender and transgender, male and female. And I think without knowing it, most of us have been formed by purity culture, which which is um, uh, wrapped around sexuality. And it tends to train your brain to identify wholeness and goodness and righteousness based on who or who you're not having sex with. Um, The weird thing about purity culture is it plays really well with her sinister sister patriarchy, because now guess what now? With with purity and patriarchy coming together, we're now talking about something something different. We're talking about controlling women's bodies, um, because they, of course, must be a need to be controlled. So, for for many of us who grew up in a purity culture, we experienced the sadness of, of of sexual disassociation as well as the the shame of our own sexuality and. And instead of really learning more about our bodies, how they worked, why we're feeling the way we feel, um, we were told to suppress or deny or kill those desires all out of purity. And I think that's why so many of us even today struggle with having very unhealthy views of human sexuality.
1: Oh, for sure. This one hits super close to home for me, especially the not being whole part and the shame part. I mean, I had a purity ring. I went to a father-daughter purity ball. I heard so many sermons on who knows how many Bible studies, did so many Bible studies on why my sexual purity was so important and why I needed to fend off those horrible boys who wanted something from me. I was even influenced by Joshua Harris, but not by his I Kiss Dating Goodbye book. It was by a different one. Unfortunately, I can't get into that in this episode, but uh, we are going to do some episodes in the future dedicated to each of the three Ps. So I'll rest my case for now, but do stay tuned for those episodes because they're going to be great. Ultimately, I would say the message I got was that my sexual purity and whether I could keep it determined whether I was worthy of God's grace or not. Which, as a teenager...
0: Yeah, yeah, and, th- and that's purity culture, right? Like, that is defining who's in, who gets it, and it's purity culture.
1: And it's solely based on behavior. Right. Which is, is that's antithetical to the gospel, but as a teenager, I did not pick up on that. Uh, so, let's talk about what you called purity's evil sister, but I, I might say this is her evil brother,
0: mm-hmm. uh, which
1: is patriarchy, because uh, that's not something we talk about Often in our culture. But I mean, I know it's obviously the opposite of matriarchy, which is where the men for patriarchy. It's where the men are in control, not the women. They're the heads of the household, not the women. The women take on the men's last names, not the other way around. But I'm guessing that there's a lot more nuance to it when it comes to Christianity. So what is that?
0: Patriarchy is something that we don't necessarily talk about or name, but it is a cultural milieu in which we find ourselves living in on a daily basis. It's the backdrop for life for most of us in the West. It's a set of beliefs and practices that exerts male dominance over women in the home, in society at large, and in particular in the church. It's a social, it's a religious, it's a theological construct that assumes an unequal distribution of power. Between men and women, and it fixates on biological differences between men and women, turning and creating reasons for men to justify their, their dominance over women you know, based on a perceived inferiority in the female sex. So for the most part in patriarchal relationships, men have power, women don't, men rule, women submit. And we see this in the church. The The problem, of course, is that male domination is a human invention. It is not a God-ordained social structure. We, we have to reject that because what it does is it creates this sort of separate but equal concept where women are considered made in the image of God just a little bit less than men. And, and it's pervasive everywhere. So for our listeners who don't know us, Melanie and I used to work together at a small nonprofit ministry. And Mel, I don't remember, or I can't, I can't remember if you were there, but there was one day during a staff meeting at the at the place where we used to work where the CEO stood up, and of course he was a male, and he was addressing the staff. And he looked at the women in the room and he literally said this: He said, I know you have to and need to submit to your husbands at home, but that doesn't Necessarily mean that you have to submit to the men here in the office, and I I I couldn't believe what I just heard, and yet I could believe it because we live in a religious system that elevates men to control and puts women in subservience. And I wanted to punch him in the face, but (laughs) it was it was so normal. Like the women just sort of took it. Um, But what I did notice is they they shrunk. They realized even here at work, they were second-class citizens. And, you know, we just have to name this and to reject it for uh, how toxic it it truly is.
1: Wow. No, I definitely wasn't there when that happened. And I'd love to say that I wish I was because then I would have challenged it. But honestly, I probably would have just gone right along with it. I mean, how could I not? I've been taught my whole life by Christians, that men are the head and women are the helpmeet, the support. I'm supposed to submit to have the gentle and quiet spirit. And definitely I'm supposed to be okay with being paid less than my male counterparts and even my male inferiors simply because I don't have to support my family the way a man has to. And I also think it's ironic that the leader said that the women wouldn't have to submit to the men at the office when the leadership team was 100% made up of men. So how how could they not su- submit to the men?
0: Right. I- I- ironic. Yeah, yeah. How exactly. did that happen, right? Um,
1: <laughs> but it's, it's still, honestly, to this day, it feels like sinning if I even allow myself to consider that God might not have set it up that way for men to be in charge. Uh, so it shows how well the indoctrination really worked. Uh, But let's move on to the final one, the big one. Let's talk about power.
0: Yeah. So power in particular has kind of come to the forefront over the last four years when, you know, droves of us have watched our churches, our families, our faith leaders really abandon a lot of the basic tenets of Christianity in pursuit of political power. So this isn't just an abstract theological conversation here. This is reality. It's caused a lot of trauma for so many of us who are looking at modern Christianity and wondering what in the world is going on. And unfortunately, the church has a pretty messy history when it comes to using power poorly, if not altogether, just worshiping it in general. And we, we referred to this in episode one of our podcast, when we talked about the Emperor Constantine and how his legacy of combining the church and state into this unholy union birthed 1,700 years of, of Western Christianity, where Christians have been in, in control. We have been in power. And so what we mean by that is just our ability to exert control and dominance and authority over the culture at large. And that continues today. I mean, the alignment of the kingdom of God, the alignment of God's work of, of salvation is particularly linked to, especially in America, a very specific and fallible political party. It's why 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in the 2016 election, and why 75% of them re-upped and voted for his you know reelection campaign. And so For so for so many people, the GOP simply stands for God's own party. Mm. And, you know, I got to be honest, like I'm fairly politically homeless. Um, I'm pretty centric, but I have you have to beg the question why? What is going on when, you know, the vast majority of evangelicals have turned out in mass to support a man who's been married three times? Uh, a man who was caught on a hot mic saying that he grabs women by the genitals, a man who said he would date his daughter if she wasn't his daughter, uh, a, a man who has admittedly paid hush money to a porn star to 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 cover up an illicit affair. I mean, what in the world is going on uh, that, that we just, carte blanche, have supported this as Christians? It, it doesn't make any sense, and yet— when you start to look at it, it sadly does make sense. Calvin University professor Kristen cobes Demez talks about the evangelical support of Trump, and she references this unholy trinity we're talking about. Um, her book, Jesus and John Wayne, which is like the best title of any book I think I've ever heard <laughs> of. Well, she talks about this, and she says, evangelicals haven't betrayed their values in supporting Donald Trump He's actually the culmination of their values. He's the culmination of a half-century-long pursuit of a militant Christian masculinity. That Trump is the reincarnation of John Wayne, sitting tall in the saddle, a man who isn't afraid to resort to violence to bring order, who protects those deemed worthy of protection, who wouldn't let political correctness get in the way of saying what needed to be said, or the norms of democratic society keeping him from doing what he needed to be done unencumbered by traditional christian virtue trump was the latest and the greatest high priest of the evangelical cult of masculinity Ooh. so so here you know underlying everything that she's saying is uh, and and are these three p's of purity patriarchy and power so trump becomes the ideal candidate he becomes the ideal presidential candidate for evangelicals because He's militant. He's a culture warrior. He's a strong man who's going to fight for God and protect God as if God needs protecting in the first place. And it shouldn't be a coincidence that this same person is blatantly misogynistic, that he lives in a patriarchal world. And, And what's crazy is that Trump actually ran on a platform of purity. Because let's just be honest, make America great again has always actually meant make America white again. Oh, so. So in a way, Trump sort of lived out these three P's, you know, writ large in American public life over the last four years.
1: Yep. And there's a whole history that got us to this point. That includes Jerry Falwell Sr. and his quote-unquote moral majority, as well as Phyllis Schlafly and even Dr. James Dobson. There's a lot in there that we don't have time to get into today. But if you don't know about that, I highly recommend taking some time to look it up. It's fascinating. Possibly we'll have time to dive into it in the episode on power. But for now, I just want to ask, can you briefly explain how we got to this point where Christian equals and only equals Republican.
0: Well, I think it started around 1980 with Ronald Reagan's presidential campaign with the cementing of the moral majority as a political arm of of the Republican Party. So it's meant that most of us grew up over the last 35 years with the understanding that evangelicals are actually more known as a political lobby than they are as a religious group. And it seems to start with and stem from cultural change, where suddenly in the 1980s, you know, post-sexual uh, reformation, if you will, that Christians began to lose their place at the center of power. And it's almost like an Oedipus persecution complex to where we are responding to a society that is growing more and more pluralistic. And to a society that frankly doesn't want to listen to us anymore. But but here's the the problem is that we're not suffering persecution. We're we're simply sharing our place at the table. Like, you know, the rejection of theocracy or white nationalism is not persecution. The inability to force your views on others isn't persecution. It's just called being a decent human being. And and, hmm. and you know, sadly. When you, when we look at evangelicalism in particular, and at especially more fundamentalist expressions of faith at large, we see these drifting toward authoritarianism. Mark Galee, the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, said, the more conservative evangelical you are, the more you tend to get attracted to authoritarian figures. So, so we're not necessarily making this up. It, it's pretty common knowledge that... You you begin to see how all of these come together under an idea of domination and authority, where if we can craft these three Ps to our own will, we still stay in charge.
1: All right. Let me just recap and make sure I have this straight. So purity is how we draw a line in the sand to determine who's in and who's out, who's worthy and who's not. Patriarchy is almost like a subset of purity just another arbitrary way to define who's in, men, and who's not, women. And therefore, by excluding 50% of the population, you make it even easier to maintain your power. And that power is how you enforce all these arbitrary lines in the sand and make sure to keep yourself in charge, make sure to control everything. And I have to assume that for a lot of parts of Christianity it originally stemmed from a good motivation which was to advance the gospel but it's just been twisted and distorted where the gospel is no longer really part of it it's just this unholy trinity did i get all that right
0: yeah you did and and it really stems from a dominator form of of religion and i think that's driven by fear so when we look at our fellow christians in the public square or on social media you know we just see a lot of people who look terrified they are fearful of change they're fearful of the you know quote browning of america they're fearful of sharing their resources or their wealth they're fearful of sharing the pew uh on sunday morning with homosexuals they're they're scared that we will no longer be a christian nation frankly as if we were ever a christian nation in the first place so I think much of this is, is stemming from our desire to dominate as opposed to our desire to to serve. We want to be in control of culture. We don't necessarily want to serve culture.
1: Or to even trust that God is in control. So we exactly, take it into right. our own hands. All right. We've unpacked a lot here. But. I just want to bring this back to why all this really matters. Um, And and even, again, it goes back to our tagline, which is losing religion and finding Jesus. We want to get rid of the toxic parts of religion in our pursuit of Jesus. So I would assume that Jesus has something to say about purity, patriarchy, and power, right? I mean, if religion has worshipped at the altar of this unholy trinity, then I would guess that Jesus didn't.
0: Yeah, so let's just start with power. So when we look at the historical Jesus that is given to us through the Gospels, we see that from his first temptation in the desert to his last temptation in the garden, he rejects any notion that his kingdom or salvation would come through power, control, or coercion. You know, think about the story of Jesus in the desert being tempted by the devil And Satan shows him in one glimpse all the kingdoms of the world. And he tells him, look, all you got to do is bow down to me. Like, I know where this story goes, right? It's going to go, you're going to go to the cross. You don't have to do that. You worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms. I will force everyone to worship you. And Jesus rejects that. And instead of coercion, he chooses the cross because he realized that that's never going to be the way God brings about his his goodness and his salvation by forcing us to accept it. So that's power in a nutshell. In terms of patriarchy, we just have to be, we have to be honest and say that a lot of the Bible is patriarchal. And it's not so much a prescriptive way that we should live. It's actually a descriptive backdrop that describes the world of the text. Mm. So when we think about patriarchy, patriarchy truly is kind of our, our, our most original sin. And it sets men up to lord over women as soon as we moved out of the garden, as soon as we moved sort of east of Eden. And, you know, whether it be ancient Judaism or the early church, the Bible was written in a patriarchal culture. So when Jesus comes onto the scene in this context, it makes his feminism even far more radical, even far more revolutionary, because he rejected the norms of his society. He spoke to women in public. He allowed them to follow him and become his disciples. He refused to shame them. He ate with them. You know, he even learned from women. Uh, the story of the Syrophoenician woman, women were last at the tomb and first at the resurrection. And, and we can actually argue that the Bible is a very subversive way of showing us that the only true disciples of Jesus were women. You know, where are the men? They're hiding. Um, they're running away from the cross. Women are running Toward it, so I think Jesus rejects patriarchy from its basic foundations, and we're going to talk a lot more about that in, in our subsequent episodes and then ultimately, in terms of purity or purity culture, Jesus was constantly getting in trouble with the religious establishment for breaking the law. he was breaking purity laws right and left, you know he ate with tax collectors and sinners, he touched lepers he Picked grain on the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath. And what's kind of funny is that Jesus actually calls the Pharisees these great keepers of purity. He actually calls them unmarked graves or, or whitewashed tombs, turning the tables on them, meaning that they themselves were the impure ones, not the sinners. Um, and I think what we're going to try to do is is really show and really see in our episode on purity that Jesus was not about a politic or a social construct of purity. He lived a life of compassion that rejected these purity laws.
1: Mm. There's just so much that we miss when we don't fully understand the cultural context and the background and even the nuance of the ways Jesus responded to the religious culture of his day. And all of it really shows how the kingdom that Jesus came to establish is just completely counterintuitive and totally different from the kingdoms of men, these kingdoms that we try to set up in place of the kingdom of God. His kingdom cannot be pursued through power or purity or patriarchy or control or manipulation or force or any of these things that we turn toward to enforce our kingdoms. The church can only follow in the way of Jesus when we do what he did, which is reject the world's way of doing things And instead, seek to humble ourselves, to uplift the oppressed, to reject power, to serve, to make ourselves last while we elevate others and put them first. And I would say, based on what we've seen today and what we're going to talk about in these upcoming episodes, it's clear that the church has decided to take things into its own hands and not let God be the head of his church. So honestly, it's no wonder so many of us really want nothing to do with that church. As frustrating as that is, it does make me super excited for the next few episodes because we are going to talk about the alternative and how we can be the church that we're supposed to be. There's so much more to unpack and deconstruct and understand, especially regarding this unholy trinity and how it impacts not only our religion, but also our faith and our understanding of God. So that's it for this episode. To those of you who have already taken the time to listen to the first episode, to subscribe, to share it with others, to leave a review. Thank you so much. We're extremely grateful, and we're so glad that you're helping us spread the word. Don't forget that we'd love to hear from you, whether you've got a question, a concern, something you need help with. You just want to share a cool story or your own personal deconstruction story, or even just want to pass on some encouragement to us please shoot us a DM. We're on Twitter or Facebook as at holyheretics and on Instagram as holyhereticspodcast. Or if you're not on social media, you can always email us at podcast at sophiasociety.org. That's podcast at S-O-P-H-I-A society.org. For show notes and references, please head to holyheretics.org. God willing, we'll be back soon with another episode, but we are a nonprofit organization, so the Sophia Society relies on donations from listeners like you to be able to produce content like this episode. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find us there at patreon.com slash holyheretics, and thanks in advance for considering that. We'll hopefully see you again next time. This episode was written by Gary Allen Taylor and Melanie Mudge and produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith in Foxholes and sound levels were mixed by Melanie Mudge and Joshua Mudge.